In this episode, we speak with Kieran Cox from the National Standards Authority of Ireland, the NSAI. Kieran is involved in standards development, education, and promotion. Kieran, I'll be a bit uh, provocative. How do we spell standardization with an S or a Z? It's, it's usually with a Z. It's, it's usually with a Z. And, and, uh, so no standard on that. You're, you're not going to be shot. But, well, it is, I suppose it is captured in, in the rules, the internal regulations of, of the different organizations. So okay. you would use a Z. Okay. Would you say that standards processes are legal or political or scientific or social? Well, I would say all three, Alan, really. They are scientific because they were used, uh, obviously, by engineers and technical people originally, um, but they have become more business-focused over the years. So I'd say scientific uh, from that point of view, um, but also political because they are used to, I suppose, regulate and help regulate the European free trade activities. Now, if you think of the current situation with, with Brexit, the British are moving out of Europe. They feel they're not subject to the same rules and regulations, trade rules and regulations uh, as we are in Europe. But in fact, when they want to sell into Europe, they're still subject to complying with standards and European uh, directives. And, and standards are used to, to comply with the European directives. So it can get very political when, when you're looking at some standards. And then from a legal point of view, again, there are some standards that are referenced directly in legislation and you cannot uh, supply those products into the European marketplace uh, without complying with the relevant legislation. So again, I'm, I'd refer out to uh, European directives. Uh, so again, they're legal instruments when it comes to, to supplying products into the European free trade area. That's really interesting that this coexistence between the scientific perspective. You, you can get huge commercial advantage by using a standard. I, I always think of the USB stick and how developing a standard for USB technology opened up markets for that technology. So originally it was for the computer industry and then because there was a standard available for uh, other industries to, to take up that standard. So it's a the photography industry or the smart TV industry, immediately what that meant was that you could use that USB technology to put a, a film on it and play it on your smart TV, for example. So it opened, opened up another marketplace for that, that technology. So it can, a standard can confer considerable um, business advantage when you start adopting and using them. Um, it makes, makes the technology understandable, I suppose, and acceptable to, to other uh, industry players. So that ties in nicely with economics. In economics, we talk about network effect. So you're talking about essentially a bigger market effect means a bigger pie. So it doesn't make sense to for one actor to control the standard for a small piece of pie. If they open it up to others, then the pie gets bigger. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, and, and I mentioned the European free trade um, efforts there. That's using the, the standard for cement was trying to protect our market and, and, and only have Irish cement producers selling into Irish cement um, users, if you like. But then that, that, that's, we were using that standard as what's called a technical barrier to trade. We were preventing other cements coming into Ireland. But what that also meant was other people were doing that in Europe as well. So we found it difficult to sell our cement into Europe. 
But now with the use of standards um, to prevent a technical barrier to trade, if everybody is using the same standard, it opens up the European marketplace to all players. So all companies can send, sell their product into Europe so long as they, they comply with the relevant uh, standards. And, and of course, we know then what we're getting as a, as a product, if, if it meets a standard, we know what we're getting. So yes, there's a lot of advantages from a business point of view of using standards and complying with standards. So by a roundabout way, that if the market is bigger, that means there's a benefit if many actors agree. And so there's a role for coordinating and organizing that at some level. Is that what these organizations are, the NSAI, ISO? Yeah, so we have three, what I'd like to think of as three levels. So you've got the, the national level. So every nation, uh, any well-developed economy will have a standards body. So here in Ireland, it's the NSAI, the National Standards Authority of Ireland. We are the state authority for standards and standardization. We have the standards department um, that look after the development and publication and promotion of standards. We have the department then that goes out and, and certifies uh, companies to the different standards. So, you know, if you want to have a, an independent uh, certification to ISO 9001, the business excellence part of NSAI, they're auditors and they will go out, they will audit you against the standard. It could be a management system standard or a product standard, and they will then certify you as, as being complied with the, with the relevant standard. They, they come in on an ongoing basis, not just a once-off certification, but then there's the ongoing compliance audits that happen. And depending on the size of the organization, then that could be twice a year, up to three or four times a year, maybe. Then we have the legal metrology service. So anything that's used for measurement in trade has got to be calibrated. So, for example, when you go to get petrol or diesel for your car, you'll see an NSAI sticker on the petrol pump that indicates that it has been proven and, and it applies with uh, measurement standards. So it just means if you're paying for a litre of fuel that you actually get a litre of fuel. Then we have the National Metrology Laboratory up in Glasnevin. And they are involved in the maintenance and development of national standards for physical units. Um, so if you want to know, well, if I have a weighing scale in, in, uh, in my shop and I want to make sure that it is calibrated, I have, a, I have a kilogram weight that I put on it, can I check that kilogram weight? Well, you can send it up to the National Metrology Lab and they will check it against international standards. So they hold the national standards, I suppose, that are traceable back to international standards for everything from... Uh, weight, volume, acoustics, uh, electricity, everything you can think of, everything you can measure. Uh, then we have the Agriment Service. The Agriment Service is involved in the certification of building uh, materials, products or processes, if there's no uh, national standard already existing. That's NSAI in a nutshell. NSAI, I suppose to say, is, is also a notified body. So a notified body is an organisation that's notified uh, by the Irish Government to the European Commission as having responsibility for certain uh, European directives here in Ireland. And then in Europe, you have three organizations, SEN, SENELEC, and ETSI. And internationally, you have three organizations, the ISO, the IEC, and the ITU. So they would be the three landscapes, the international, the regional, as in Europe for, for our purposes, and then national. And these organizations all work quite closely together. So, for example, you might have the International Telecommunications Union and they would look after telecommunication standards internationally. And then you have ETSI, the European Telecommunications Standards Institute, and they would 
like after telecommunications on a European level. But there's no point in those two organizations working in competition with each other. If it's telecommunications, it needs to be worldwide really at this stage. So, so they work very closely together. They have a memorandum of understanding that, that they don't compete and they don't duplicate work, that sort of stuff. So all of those the, the European bodies and the international bodies have various agreements that, that they won't duplicate work or won't compete with each other. So SEN and ISO, for example, have the Vienna agreements signed in 1991. Senelec and IEC have the Frankfurt and the Dresden agreements, and uh, they were going back to 1991 and 96, respectively. So they, they don't compete with each other. They work very, very close together and, and uh, will sit on each other's uh, committees. Uh, from a national point of view, uh, we have a requirement, a, a, an obligation really to sit on, on the three European uh, standards bodies, uh, Sen, Senelec and SE. So we have to be involved. We have no choice. As members of Europe, we have to engage with SEN, SENELEC and SE. And when those three organisations publish a European standard, every European state has to adopt that standard as a, as a, a national standard. So it, again, it just levels the playing field. It means everybody's using the same standard across Europe. And that then makes it very easy from a business point of view to know that if you comply with the standard in Ireland, Europe, they're complying with it really over and overseas as well. You know, now there, there are some uh, cases where we have what we call a national annex, where there are national requirements written into the standard in an annex. And what that means is, if you think of the construction sector in particular, we have very different weather conditions, for example, that, that, that they do have over in, in parts of Europe. So we don't have the snowfall that they would have in, in different parts of, let's say, Germany or Switzerland. If we were to use the design parameters that they use in these countries where they have huge snowfall, we'd be over-designing our building and, and there'll be costs associated with that. Likewise, if they were to use a standard um, developed in Ireland with the Irish parameters, they will be under-designing their, their building. So th these, these parameters allow us to um, put in national requirements or national parameters that suit our conditions. Think of even the, the wind maps that you would have over in, in the west of Ireland in comparison to, we say, in, in the centre of Spain. You wouldn't get this high winds with horizontal driving rain as well at the same time that you get over in the west coast. You wouldn't get that in the middle of Spain. So they have to take that into account in the west coast of Ireland when they're building buildings. They don't have to take it into account in, in different places, places of Spain or France, you know. So in, in a sense, um, you've led straight into the idea of a standard itself. They're the scientific instruments in a sense, aren't they? The objective instruments. Yeah, and, and they, I suppose there, there are different definitions for a standard, but really it's, it's a document that's, that's intended for repeated use and it, it's, it tries to capture best practice. Um, it's a document developed by consensus. So it's not, um, as is usually uh, portrayed, a, a guy with a grey beard over in, in a, a basement in Brussels writing up these standards and imposing them on us all. These standards are, are, are developed by consensus, by committees. We have national committees here in Ireland and they mirror the work that's being done on the committees in Europe or internationally. So we keep an eye or we get involved in, the, in this work and then we adopt the standard when it's published. So, so these, these documents are not imposed on us in, in that way, although once they are accepted and published, then we do have to adopt them. But, but in the development of them, 
there, there's certainly a consensus document and the capture best practice or what is seen as best practice by the experts in the industry as well. So these committees that develop the standards are, are made up of industry experts, uh, interested groups like environmental groups, that type of thing. So they'd be um, experts or practitioners in a field coming together to agree what, what is best practice, what is good practice, capturing that in some sense in a, in a description that they, they revise, they agree on. And essentially the, the rest of the standards structure and the organizations trust those committees to do good work. And then it's a matter of managing versions and sharing and, and promoting these documents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We encourage um, on a regular basis and we're looking for experts on a regular basis when there's a work item comes up. So the, the European Commission would have a, an annual union work program is what they call it. This is a, a range of standards that they want to see developed. So they will put that annual work program out, the NSAI see it, and, and we put a call out for experts to, to get involved in this standardization work. So we would look at certain stuff from a, a national point of view and feed that point of view into the European work. Um, and then as the document is being developed at a European level, we watch the development of the standard or if we're involved, we, we, we comment on the standard as well. And, and, you know, from that point of view, then it's, it's a consensus document. The document goes out for, for public comment on a regular basis. So anybody can um, comment on the, on the document. It's not just the National Committee. Uh, the National Committee will look for standards from members of the public and then feed that uh, information or those comments back in. To the European Committee. Okay, so there are open feedback mechanisms from anybody, literally, but the committees themselves would be made up of people agreed as practitioners or experts in the field. Exactly, exactly. So the, the, so the experts, uh, people seen as experts sitting on the committees would develop the standard. Uh, they'd send it out in draft form for review uh, by the uh, national committees, maybe, and, and the public. Um, and those comments then are taken into account in, in developing the next iteration of the standard or the revised document. So it goes from a draft international standard to a draft, final draft international standard and then the published standard itself. And then over the years, like over generally over a five-year period, the document is revisited and uh, revised if necessary. So the people taking part in the committees, are they acting as volunteers or are they paid to attend? Are they representing their employers? No, well, they're they're generally volunteers. Now, they could come from industry, so they could be representing their employers. Uh, but it, the NSAI doesn't pay anybody to uh, get involved in, in standards development. For the most part, these standards are developed on a voluntary basis. Um, many standards organizations, the, the European standards organizations and the international standards organizations that I, I mentioned there are, are voluntary organizations. They're not, they're not state organizations uh, by any means. So a member of a committee may be employed by a company in that area, but they're not representing the company. The company doesn't have a seat on the committee as such. Exactly. They're, they're bringing their competency and they're, they're really asked not to bring any, what would you say, influences from their organization or try and influence the standards to their organization's um, advantage. It's, it's really developing the document to capture the state of the art that makes it easy for everybody to use it then. Industry is developing uh, technological advancements in patenting, and yet they also want those advancements to be applied across the network. Well, I, I suppose it, like in, in the real world, 
there will always be a reason to develop a standard. And if we go back to the early part of the conversation, an organization might want to develop a standard to try and promote their technologies out in, in the industry or out in, in the marketplace. But really what we try and do then by pulling the committees together uh, and putting uh, experts and, and volunteers from various sectors and various different industries or maybe different players in, in one industry sector, that you don't have one person dominating the content of the standard or one organization dominating the content of the standard. Your comment there that refers to, we say, early technologies. There are times when um, technology is so early that it's, it's very early to standardize it. it, it it's not possible to standard, uh, standardize it. The standards organizations take that into account and they don't always publish just standards. There are different deliverables, I suppose. So we have things like technical specifications. So a technical specification would be uh, something that's trying to capture a way of doing something when the technology is very early. And then that technical specification will develop into a standard over time when the technology uh, design and, and acceptance settles down. And so the standard itself wouldn't capture perhaps the patentable parts, but it must be uh, usable and uh, adaptable by another party. So a company might have a, a key competence and, and capability in an area, and they make part of it available or interfaces, let's say, and that will go into the standard. And any other party could then develop a, a something to work with that interface, not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, yeah. so there, there are rules around um, patents and intellectual property rights that um, have to be taken into account when you're developing a standard. And they then sometimes license them freely for members of a, of a particular uh, standards community, I suppose. Licensing is not really the, the, the word I'd, I'd use, but it's, it's allowing access, I suppose, to the, uh, the, the, maybe the intellectual property or, or the, the standards uh, parameters, I suppose, if you like, or the, the, maybe the construction parameters of, of a product and allowing that to be captured in a standard. So if you're innovating in a space, you're kind of dancing between competition and cooperation with your competitors. Yeah, very much so, yeah. And, and that's where it's important to have the wide... Community involvement. Community involvement, exactly, of, of this, in a standards committee, yeah. And so we've talked about why markets for goods and services actually require standards to operate. There's all this kind of knowledge that's encoded in, in the instruments themselves. Um, so how are international standards named? A number is, is assigned to a standard. So we say ISO 9001. So 9000 is, is the, 9000 itself is the family of standard. 9001 is the requirements document. ISO is obviously the organization that develops it. So if you're searching for a standard, you would look at, at ISO as the publisher. Now, obviously, when Ireland adopts an ISO standard, we say so it becomes an IS ISO, so an Irish standard, ISO 9001. So the prefix before the number will show you the provenance of the standard. So ISO developed, so it's ISO 9001, and it's ISISO adopted by Ireland as an ISO standard. Okay, so prefix, dot, prefix, dot, number, anything else? Um, well, the, the, there's three prefixes, I suppose. So the, there's the Irish prefix, is the I.S. dot, so Irish standard. Then you have the European standards bodies, SENSEN, LECA, and ETSI will always have EN in front of it. EN is a European norm or European standard. And then you will have either ISO, IEC, or ITU as 
one of the three internationals. So, for example, it could be a pure international standard from ISO, so it would be ISO 1234. It could be an ISO document adopted by Europe, so it becomes an EN ISO 1234. And then because it's an EN, a European standard, we have to adopt it in Ireland, so it becomes an ISEN ISO 1234. Or it could be a pure Irish document, a pure IS 1234. If it's a pure Irish document, for example, IS.1234, it may actually use a number that's been allocated somewhere else in the namespace of uh, another organization, might yeah, Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's important to keep uh, in mind who the publisher is. Is it an Irish standard, a European or an international standard? Because you could have ISO 1234 and IS 1234 and they're two totally different documents. So it is important to, to take into account both the number and the prefix in front of it. And is there any information in the numbering then subsequently? I've seen standards where there's a number and then a colon and then another number. Yeah, you, you could have um, up to 10 or 12 different um, uh, standards in a family of standards. So you could have IS 123-1 all the way up to IS 123-12, uh, for example, where there are 12 different sections. And one, maybe the first section is signs and symbols of the, of the standard. Dash two could be the risk assessment uh, associated with a particular product. Dash three could be the production of the product. There could be just different focuses on the different elements of it. Yeah. And how do these change over the years? How do you track the current version? Because presumably there are previous versions of the same standard, that's, but it gets improved, doesn't it? Yeah, well, after that number, then you will have a year of publication. So it will be 123 colon 1998, for example. And then the next one will be 123 colon 2005, whatever the, the next iteration of it is. There's definitely an insider language and terminology in the standards space, isn't there? There is. Um, it can be very confusing at first, but it, what you find is that as you get involved in the area of standardization, the area that your particular interest is, that, that, that language becomes more and more familiar to you over, over time. Well, that's really good. I think we've covered a lot. Um, we've looked at the relationship between the sort of standards infrastructure, the political legal apparatus, and also its, its um, dependence on scientific contribution on uh, community and industry. Uh, we've looked at the, the sort of naming and, and how we identify in the terminology, um, and we've looked at the application. So I think really, really interesting overview of standards uh, in general. I would say to anybody, if they're interested in standards and standardization, contact the NSAI. We're always looking for experts in, in certain areas to join committees. I, I would also say to engineers or, or business people out there that, you know, that there's a career uh, in standards and standardization. It's something to, to bear in mind for all students. It's a very important area, whether you're a business or a scientist or a technical person, it's, it's a very important area. It's so important for entrepreneurs or business people to support uh, standards activity within their companies, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and be aware of it. Be aware of what's going on and what's coming down the line because you, you could be developing a product and there's a new standard or, you know, an updated version of a standard coming down the line. So being compliant with the current standard is all very well, but you need to know if that's going to be changed or if it's under, under uh, change at the moment. So there's a strategic competitive angle. You need somebody to be watching standards in your space to see how they impact your organization. 
very much so because they're linked to the European directives and the free trade system. In a lot of cases, they're voluntary, but in a lot of cases, they're, you know, they're, they're called up in legislation. So you need to keep that in mind. Thank you very much, Kieran, for giving us this overview of standards for organisations and businesses in Ireland, Europe and internationally. But more importantly, highlighting the role of everyday people for professionals in contributing to the ongoing development of standards.